VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, October the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams is sitting in the producer's chair today. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. Hopefully it's a little bit of a nicer day where you are. Once again here in VOCM Valley, RDF rules the day, but let's get the show heated up. I don't know if I mentioned this yesterday. I meant to. But in the St. John Senior Baseball League, the championship was decided over the weekend in Game 7. Gonzaga Vikings against one of their arch rivals, the Shamrocks, of course, the Shammies. And Gonzaga comes out on top with a 10-6 victory. So congratulations to the Vikings. But as I see Terry Hart mentioned, and Terry Hart, look, if you don't follow him on Twitter and you want to follow local sports and some good news in the economic sectors, it's VOCM Hart. Great account. Follow Terry. And so he added into this note of the Vikings winning the championship that two of the stars for Gonzaga, Troy Croft and Mike O'Neill. Of course, Troy, well known for his exploits as a baseball player. Terrific player, big guy, big hitter. And Mike O'Neill, Mike's my vintage. I'm a bit older than Troy, but Mike and I are the same age. Mike's in his 50s out there, not just playing, but playing great ball. So congratulations to the lads. How many of you following along? It's hard to know who to cheer against in the American League Championship Series. Houston Astros with all of their cheating baggage. And then, of course, the Bronx Bombers, the New York Yankees. Anyway, they got through last night. Anywho, let's keep it going. Also mentioned in a Terry Hart's account, I did see last night, I was watching the highlights this morning, see Dawson Mercer, New Jersey Devils forward, Bay Roberts native, scored his first goal of the season, good for Dawson. But Terry does the, the job that many of us do. We reach out to folks who have any kind of connection to this province, and we throw them into our thoughts and recollections of the night before. And Terry's done that this morning. He says, Drake Batherson, whose family's from Port of Basque, and we see you folks on the southwest coast. We're happy to speak with you on a topic of your choosing this morning, but Batherson had a goal to assist last night josh norris whose father dwayne is a townie st john's boy played for avalon josh of course an american played for the united states in the world juniors and is a terrific player he had an assist last night too so that boy terry keep it coming uh and on the hockey front you know i read a story this morning where there's a former canadian olympian female hockey player her name was kate weatherston you know, while we're seeing how Hockey Canada has behaved so badly and the scandal that is shrouding over anything that we love about the game in this country and all of the funds set aside, the equity funds, for compensation for victims of sexual assault. So they've paid out some $7.6 million since 1989 in nine different complaints. We found that there was one fund, then we found there was a second fund, and now we understand there's a third fund. I know that Hockey Canada has been scrapped from the CEO through all the members of the board of directors, but that story is infuriating. Add to it this story with Kate Weatherston. So she played for her country, and we know when we see hockey players down the make belief on the men's side, by and large, they're professional players. Right? They're not going to work after hours at home hardware to make ends meet, be able to play for their country, like so many of the women do. So Kate suffered serious head injuries, and she's been struggling for years with medical costs in the neighborhood of thirty to $40,000 per year, many of which coming out of her pocket. She's actually taken to doing her own acupuncture and cupping. She's in hyperbaric chambers and all the rest of the chiropractors. Hockey Canada's offered her $4,000. 
So while we see these funds paying out to victims of sexual assault, which they should, but we should know about it, and you know the scandal, and yet this woman, all these years later, 15 years later, still struggling with her traumatic brain injury, and 4000 bucks is the money coming out the door for her, just absolutely ridiculous. And a couple of important notes in history. We all know about the merciless North Atlantic. And I remember this story, not because I was live at the time, but I have seen the book kicking around. It was today in 1952 that a French biologist and physician, his name is Alain Bombard, he set sail in an inflatable 15-foot boat to prove that shipwrecked people could survive crossing an ocean. So he took very limited supplies. So a sextant for navigation, almost no provisions. He survived by fishing, drinking a limited amount of seawater. He published a book about it, the book I mentioned. It's called Naufrage Volontaire, which is wrecked volunteer. He made it across the ocean, some 4,400-kilometer voyage in nine weeks. Amazing to even want to take that on. And a proud and important today in history as well. It was 86 years ago today that VOCM first hit the airwaves. So happy birthday to VOCM and to everyone who's worked for the station over the course of the 86 years, and your support of the station is tremendous. All right, 86 years ago, how about that? Okay, so today we're going to get the fall fiscal update from the Minister of Finance, Siobhan Cody. It's going to be at 11 o'clock. I'm unsure whether or not we're going to carry it live here on VOCM. When I figure it out, I'll let you know. Good. So a couple of things. There's been lots of money being I was going to say thrown around, but that's not fair. There's been lots of money pledged for a variety of things. Certainly lots of recruitment and retention bonuses being offered in the world of healthcare, And we all understand the issues there. And then it was the cost of living package, the inflation package, which is being derided in many corners. You know, the cost of $194 million, some 392,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians will see a check coming their way between $500 and $250, depending on how much you make as an individual all 18 and ups who have filed their taxes. And there's, you know, real questions to be asked about will the most needy actually get this money and how does it work and what does it mean for root causes. But that really did did feel then and still feels today like the cart in front of the horse. To not really know where we are financially or fiscally makes it hard to know whether or not these are good or bad plays or ill-timed or whatever the case may be. So remember, it's not that long ago, in April, we were told the projected deficit for this year was around $351 million. Government was expected to borrow another $2.7 billion. And yet these monies are flowing. Not to say that some people don't need it. That's not the case at all. But now we'll find out exactly where we are. So there's been an increase in revenue. Okay, what revenues? Let's look at the oil business. There's been times over the years where the oil company, pardon me, the oil industry contributed in and around 30% of the revenues coming in the door. It's not that case anymore, but let's see what the minister has to say today. So the budget looked at some $86 per barrel on the average over the course of a 12-month fiscal year for the provincial government. Every fluctuation upwards on the average by a dollar means an additional $13 million to the Treasury, and we know oil has been trading well above $86. There's also the implication of the American dollar and the Canadian dollar, given the fact that oil is traded in American dollars. So we'll see where we go with it today. In addition to that, the Premier is doing what they call the very first state of the problems address, a very American type of title, being delivering that to the St. John's Board of Trade. But we will indeed be getting a fall fiscal update today at 11 a.m. this morning. And once again, I'll let you know whether or not we're going to be able to carry it live here on the show. Okay, let's keep going. And if you want to talk about that or any questions you want to pose about some of the packages and retention and recruitment dollars and or the $500 out the door, we're happy to take it on. 
And we do know, we've understood, uh, sadly we've been informed that someone did indeed perish, died, succumbed to his injuries after the flash fire out at Brea Renewable Fuels, a.k.a. Come By Chance. So one of their executives, the CEO, is a fellow named Frank Almaraz. He was interviewed yesterday uh, by someone from CBC. I can't remember who wrote the story. My apologies. Probably Terry Roberts. About the fire and the investigation. Brea has concluded their investigation. They've given that information to some 600 people, of course, employees of Come By Chance. Very little detail released to the public. There's an ongoing investigation by Occupational Health and Safety. There are questions or comments or demands coming from the union. We spoke with Glenn Nolan from the United Steelworkers uh, Union yesterday on this program to bring in the RCMP to see if, if there was any criminal activity or any criminal violations that would have led to all of these injuries. Eight people, of course, in the hospital. One has perished. One has died. One remains in the hospital. Of course, whether or not the Westray law needs to be considered here, and that goes back 30 years ago in the Westray coal mine where there was a methane leak and 26 miners died. So it's ongoing. One of the interesting parts of the story is that when asked if Brea is going to apologize to the family, to the workers, because even if you weren't there in the close location of the fire, the trauma of knowing that there was an industrial accident on your work site took someone's life, of course it's going to trickle through the entirety of the 600-person workforce. So unsurprisingly, when asked if there was an apology forthcoming, he kind of skirted around and went off to the, you know, our, the safety of our workers is our paramount concern. The, I'm paraphrasing the man. No one should be too surprised that there wasn't an apology. Whether or not there will be one in the future, I don't know. But, of course, the legal advice here would be very clear. You can't apologize and take ownership for something, which is much akin to taking full blame and basically saying it's our fault. Now, there's lots of rumors and rumbles about what caused it, whether it be a butane leak that ended up in an area where there was some metal being grinded and what have you, and a spark ignited the flash and then the fire, and then you know the rest of it. So no apology coming, but not so sure there was any surprise associated with that. No apology, but anyway, boy, I tell you, that story is going to linger for quite a while. And yes... The implications of come by chance no longer refining fuels for our consumption here. And people ask me all the time, almost every single day, about the old five cents for importation and distribution of fuels. Of course, that going to Silver Peak. And I don't even think that's the only five cents in, involved in the newfound addition to our gas bill. But you want to take it on. We can do exactly that. Talk about more investigations. Opposition members are demanding a government-led investigation into the privacy breaches at at Central Health. Now we know there's been some seven of these privacy breaches. We're told yesterday by one of the leadership uh, members of Central Health that none of the photos, inappropriate photos, show people's private parts. That was part of the rumors floating around. And, of course, we want to sift through rumors and get to fact. But still... You know, there is an investigation. The RCMP is looking at it and asking for more more information from the public if you know anything about it. But here's where it gets just, I think, a little bit flimsy. And so after this investigation is concluded, maybe the province will take up the charge and have another investigation conducted by the provincial government or led by the provincial government. Because what we've heard is absolutely disgraceful. From inappropriate photos to mocking and laughing and taunting a 92-year-old woman with an earshot of her about, I think, what's been referred to as she had an accident in bed. She's 92. You know, the, the dignified nature of her care was not available. But to say that we don't really know what's happened to any of the staff, they say the 
ramifications could be up to and including termination. They say they've mitigated the risk for the patients because if you were indeed one of those staffers, which we don't even know what discipline that staff would be, and what I mean by that is housekeepers, nurse, doctors, social worker, we don't know, that they're no longer caring for that particular patient. That's just simply not good enough. I mean, I know we have staffing issues, but the compassion and the safety and the dignity for our residents in long-term care facilities, that's where the paramount concern is. So if they were willing to treat one patient that way, what's to say because they're removed from caring for that patient that they're not willing to do it to someone else? It's completely unacceptable. We know the issues that are compounded inside of long-term care facilities. But this kind of stuff, I mean, I think the opposition members are absolutely spot on here. And hopefully, whatever minister will be responsible for health and community services when the RCMP investigation has concluded, that yes, we've got to know more. And people need to be held to account. I mean, how many times have we seen things like this? Privacy breaches in the past inside of healthcare. The nonsense that went on at the English-speaking school district and all those invoice splitting and all these things. And we never really get the follow-up story. Muskrat Falls. We never get the follow-up stories about exactly what happened to the people responsible for terrible behavior, criminal behavior, scandalous behavior, inappropriate behavior. You work for us. There's a certain level. I know you're strained and you're all burnt out, especially when we talk about healthcare workers. But when the 90, however, the 99% who are not only burnt and stressed and looking for said work-life balance, but knowing full well there's a certain level of decorum and professionalism required when you clock in. And that does not include taking pictures of people who are unwell. It does not include mocking people who've had an accident in their senior years. None of this is acceptable. We cannot let this go. And so, yes, some actual understanding of what, not just shuffling them around inside the same facility. And this is not to just pick on anything in one facility in central health. We know that there are concerns that we've heard voiced on this program in many different facilities around the province. All right, let's keep going. Another couple on the healthcare biz. So remember in a press conference talking about, you know, the retention, the recruitment of doctors in particular and all other healthcare professionals, of course, Dr. Megan Hayes, the new deputy minister responsible. And the premier said, for any of those with a concern, call my office directly. <laughs> and well, by the look of it, they did in droves. So again, this is, I think, uh, Rob Angel responsible for this, maybe include Ariana Kelland, is that there's some 200 pages of email exchanges between healthcare professionals, doctors in particular, and the Premier's office. Okay, this was always going to be the way. When someone in a leadership position like the Premier says, well, call me directly, people are going to. So there was all kinds of varied concerns. And yes, the problem says put in policies and programs to bring expats back who have some association or are formerly from this province, practicing and working elsewhere. Big money to bring them home. Doctors, for instance, $100,000 bonus. So, okay. But here's where it gets extremely disheartening. Is there stories from doctors who talk about the fact that they want to stay, and even people who are recently graduated or working towards graduating from one's medical school, upset with the, how they have not been dealt with or treated by recruiters. One doctor in particular says they don't know if they're going to stay or not, and they have never been approached for any employment conversation with a recruiter. How can that be? Remember when an emailer wrote me some while back and said that she was at the uh, convocation ceremonies at the Arts and Culture Center, and some 80 people strided, or strode, strided, walked <laughs> across the stage, 
to get their degree, and she wondered, what has the conversation been with those 80 graduates about staying and working here? That's an excellent question. But when we've got people right there in front of us who are working towards their medical degree, how can it be excusable that not every single person was sat down individually or in a group to ask and talk about opportunities to stay and work here? How can that possibly be? You know, taking up the charge for the five seats abandoned by the province of New Brunswick in our med school, excellent. But it's only excellent if every single quarter we talk to them about, hey, opportunities here, opportunities there, here's what we're willing to do, here's how much we're willing to pay, and here's what sort of uh, workplace accommodations that we can achieve. But no, some of these doctors say, nobody even talks to me. So on top of that, and exit interviews about why you're leaving, where you're going, what could be done that could have kept you here in your clinic or in your hospital or in whatever doctor's office. And I don't know how much of that we do either, but anyway, let's take it on. And this one, this was always going to be the way. We all know the story, the horrid story, of the victims of sexual and physical and mental abuse at Mount Cashel and, of course, the lawsuit that's made its way all the way through the Supreme Court and compensation dollars. The lawyers representing the victims, they still stick with the number. It's going to require some $50 million in compensation. We all know the stories about selling off the churches and church property and so many communities who are so concerned. If not, some communities are absolutely devastated with the news. I understand, and we can talk about it. Now there's the conversation which we knew was coming. It's about the potential for metro schools to be sold as well. The church still owns a lot of the schools around here. And now maybe, just maybe, we'll see what the courts rule on this one specifically, but it looks like we're going to see metro schools up for sale. Inside the School Act, we were always told that if these buildings continue to be used for educational purposes, that they were, they were going to be exempt from any of these types of actions, legal or otherwise. But maybe not. So who else can be the purchaser, the buyer, but the provincial government? We can't see schools closed because of this. Compensation is due. I understand that. But metro schools will likely be on the chopping block, as far as I can read between the lines. But that's a huge, big story with lots to talk about and consider. And yes, well, I'm following along as best I can with the public inquiry to the Emergency Measures Act being conducted in Ottawa. Where you stand depends where you sit on that particular issue, but we're not afraid of it. You want to take it on, all you have to do is pick up the phone and give us a call. Just a good light note, positive note, before we make our way to your telephone call this morning. There's a young hairstylist. You know, people say, what am I going to do with my life? What am I doing? And this young lady named Amy Pike, she just on a, I'll call it a whim, she enrolled in the hairstyling program at the Keene College back in the spring of 2021. So she's only been a hairstylist for a little over a year. She was competing at a Skills Canada competition in Vancouver during the summer. She won the gold medal. And now where is she? She's in Finland, competing in the World Skills Competition. A one-year-in hairstylist with the Team Canada jersey on, putting her best hairdo onto the head of whoever her client will be, and not a hair could be out of place. But good luck, Amy. How about that? One year in, and she's a hairstylist, maybe to the best and brightest, most beautiful people in the world. We're on Twitter. Oh, and this one, I wanted to bring this up. This is another quick sports note. It's not necessarily the anniversary yet, but it's coming up this Saturday night, October 23rd, when the Raptors, the Toronto Raptors, were scheduled to play a preseason game against Cleveland at Mile One Center. Sold out. I was in the building. And, of course, the condensation on the floor meant that they couldn't play. Crowd was furious. So the 19th anniversary coming up, uh, yeah, 
Yeah, 19th coming up on Saturday. That would have been the Raptors superstar Vince Carter at the time. And who would have been playing for Cleveland? 18-year-old phenom LeBron James. Right? And that didn't happen. I'm sorry, Dave, I couldn't hear any of that. It would have been his first game, yeah, absolutely. His first game as a member of the Cleveland basketball team, LeBron James. So hopefully on the 20th anniversary, as was pledged by Glenn Grunwald, the then uh, GM of the Toronto Raptors, bring him back. Right around Twitter, where VOCM Open Line follows there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, we're going to have a great show. I can feel it in my water. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number three. Say good morning to the business manager with the Teamsters Local 855. That's Hubert Dog. Good morning, Hubert. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How's the day following you? So far, so good, sir. How about yourself? I got a lot of upset people. We're only playing Labrador this morning. Or actually, over the last couple of weeks. We, uh, we've been paying close attention to the retention bonuses and the incentives to bring people back to this province. And uh, I did reach out to the minister to, uh, you know, let him know that we wanted to be involved in that process and, you know, to look out for, you know, make sure that the members that we have on the ground right now are, are not forgotten in this, this whole process. And then with the announcement yesterday of the, uh, of the, the most bonuses that are the brick to the foundation for a stronger health care system, the private industry was completely forgotten about. You know, I, I had that concern two weeks ago when uh, the minister announced that, you know, they had these, uh, you know, incentives to try to bring people back, and he was in discussions with the unions that represent the public service. And, you know, I, I, I sort of took the members took the impression then that, you know, all the, all the government is interested in is making sure that we have a well-funded public system in the major areas of the province. And then yesterday, with the turnaround, they ended to to offer this increase into the members that uh, in the public service, that, you know, to try to keep them in the public service. You know, it's it's just increases the the pressure and the frustration of the people that are in the rural province doing the exact same job. Our contract was up, or the, not our contract. I apologize. The contract between the government and the private operators was up in March. They come in, they exercise their right to roll the contract over, no pay, no price increases. We have seven services right now that are in negotiations again, and we're actually at the stage now where we're looking for a final report. We're again in the same situation we were about a year ago, where we now have a majority of the private services are in a strike position if they want to say they want to take that action. And then the government turns around and says, you know, your work has no value to us. We're not going to give you an increase when we we, we increase your 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 or extend your contract. Sorry. And, you know, we're going to give money to the public services, but we're not going to give any money to you guys. How are the people of rural Newfoundland and Labrador, in particular the EMRs, the PCPs, and the EMDs, that are providing these services day in and day in under, I would go as far as to say, maybe even more pressure, and I know definitely longer hours, than what the public services are doing. And then they're going to reward the public services so heartily and just ignore the private services. I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted, Patty. Hubert, uh, you and I have had this uh, type of discussion in the past, but these are the inevitable outcomes when we've been waiting years to find out what the new paramedic landscape will look like. Everybody working private, everyone working public, a multinational come in to be the overseer or the company managing the paramedic services, whether it be air and or ground. But when we have been waiting so long to figure that stuff out, these kinds of things are inevitable. Now, maybe it's strictly uh, a lack of foresight given by the provincial government to include the private rural operators in their bonus 
bonus schemes or retentions or re-signing bonuses, whatever the case may be. But this is always going to be the case. Until we figure out the big picture, we're going to have these side stories dominate and unnecessarily so. Yeah, I'm like I said. I mean, and I mean, it's, it's it's constant communication with our members. I mean, you know, when they announced the the, the bonus to come back, like, I had members actually ask me, you know, is, is it worth my while to quit, go to the mainland for a couple of months, and then come back? I mean, you know, it's it's you know, twenty five thousand dollars, I believe, for an expat to come back. You know, that's 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 a significant increase to to the wages of of uh, some of these members. But my fear there is if they choose to go that route. You get onto some of these industrial sites, or you go to other provinces, the pay is going to be better. And if you get up there and you start making a good wage, you're not going back to this province. And, you know, until we see massive, massive changes in the way that the M service is being run in rural Newfoundland and Labrador, it's going to, you know, I don't even know if the, if the incentives are going to be going to be there to draw people back. I, I almost guarantee they'll work for the public services because, you know, the quality of life is there. You know, people and people have are able to have a living and, you know, have families and whatever else and, and time to themselves working with these systems. I appreciate that there are strains at times when, you know, the people have to work significant number of overtime hours. But in reality, the overtime hours that, you know, are being asked to these people on a short-term basis and every now and then, only adds up to the amount of time that the people in rural Newfoundland and Labrador are working as a regular schedule, and you know they're working they're working these hours that don't get overtime. They don't even get paid for all the hours that we work, and we've had this discussion many times before. So I mean, and now they turn around and you know you're working for you're working longer hours, you're working for less, and we're going to reward those that are in the public system who have you know somewhat of a, a, a life, life uh, work balance with more money than than what we're going to offer to you in the private service. Fair enough. And I mean, I know this is not necessarily directly in line with what we're talking about, but when you hear stories, like if I'm a paramedic anywhere and I'm considering moving or the my family were thinking about Newfoundland and Labrador for our next stop, and then you see stories, for instance, Happy Valley Goose Bay, paramedic working a thousand hours of overtime. How can that possibly be? And then you talk bonuses. We also saw a story of a paramedic that relocated from Ontario to Labrador. Some of it was because of the bonus that was being dangled in front of him, and he hasn't, been, he hasn't received it yet. So there's always going to be that disparity. We're working way too much OT. We're losing paramedics. We're offering them bonuses, but we haven't paid them. I mean, when you add all that stuff up, it becomes even more difficult for paramedics to consider coming here and or even staying here. Most definitely, Patty. I was in negotiations yesterday with one of our companies, and, and the owner had told me this time last year they, they had all paramedics on their staff with the exception of 40 MRs. Today's picture, actually now in two weeks because notice has been put in, they will have four paramedics working in their service. The rest will be all be EMRs. Now, the health accord, I mean, we, and we've had this discussion before, has this this, this point dream that every ambulance in this province is going to have an ACP on it. The reality is we can't put enough PCPs on the ambulances in this province. And, yeah, unless the government is willing to, you know, to, to take some drastic changes there, I mean, we've talked about it before, one big hindrance is this copper exam. If we were flush with paramedics, yeah, that's a great way to weed them out. But it, it proves no value to this province to have them wait three, four months after they complete their programs to go right to this exam that costs them $800. They may or may not pass it because it's based on a curve. So somebody's always going to be guaranteed to fail this exam. And, you know, they're allowed to write it up to three times. And if they fail the three times, and they may not be through any fault of their own, 
Now they got to go back to school, pay another $1,500 to do an upgrade just to go back and try to write this exam again. Let's get rid of the, get rid of the copper. I guarantee you, and like I said, the last time we discussed this, I had 20 paramedics tell me they could go to work as PCPs if they didn't have to wait on writing the copper. There's, there's, a, there's a quick solution. doesn't cost the government anything. But we don't, and then we could, you know, we, we could start putting more PCPs on the road. You know, then we look at the wages. We look at the wages. We look at the hours. You know, chip away at it. You don't, it doesn't have to be one big massive sweep. But I mean, it, people are losing hope, and that's why we're losing people out of the system. If you're going, if you you show people that we're going, we're working towards something. We know we can't do it all in one jump. There's no, nobody in nobody in the world thinks somebody's going to snap their fingers and every problem in healthcare is going to be fixed. But you've got to demonstrate that you're doing something to fix the system. I've been involved for 33 years, and clear of the you know moving towards the PMO system, I haven't seen any drastic changes in the way that the private industry is run in this province. Appreciate the time this morning, Hubert. It's uh, it's a big issue. Sometimes paramedics, when they connect with me, they they're disappointed that their profession isn't included in the healthcare conversation as much as they think it should be. And I agree with them. It's got to be a big part of how we discuss healthcare and the recruitment and retention of everybody working in the service. Uh, appreciate the time this morning, Hubert. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Yeah, boy, oh boy. Okay, let's see if we can stay half on track here this morning. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller there who wants to talk about Justin. He wants to talk about wait time to see specialists, I believe, is what the topic will be there. And then they're talking Landlord Tenants Act and pair of drivers, the oil business, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Justin, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you this morning? I'm doing fine, thanks. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Bye. I only woke up 4 o'clock this morning throwing up blood. That's uh, you mentioned, uh, yeah, You mentioned that uh, I was uh, waiting to see a specialist. Well, I wish I was waiting to see a specialist because oh. that would mean that I would have made progress and I've got that far. What are you waiting on then? Where are we? Pardon me? Where are we? What's going on? Uh, well, I'm living in St. John's. I'm, I'm from Rand Bay originally, but I've been here now for the past three or four years. So last year I've been battling some kind of gastro illness. I'm not 100% sure what it is. You know, waking up every morning, throwing up, sick, and it's just it's really impacting my work life, right? So I seen a doctor a while ago, give me medication. They don't work. I told them they didn't work, double up on the dose. So anyway, I did that, didn't work. So anyway, this morning here I am, sick, can hardly walk, need to go to a clinic. Black Marsh Walk-In Clinic. I go there early to try to beat the line. Phone call only. So it's not a walk-in clinic. It's a phone call clinic. Talking to the receptionist, she told me about another clinic on 50 Monday Pond Road. So, grand. Went there to go to register. They were full by 7.30 this morning. I mean, I was there like quarter to nine. Now, that's fairly early. I didn't know I had to get up, you know, crack a dime just to go and see anyone. And just the virtual visits, uh, I've, I've used that, but I'm, I'm to the point now where I need uh, I need a physical, and I can't, I, I can't see anyone. I inadvertently walked into the walk-in clinic after I was first uh, assigned a family doctor for the first time in decades. Uh, I'm at that same facility on Monday Pond, and when I walked in, it was absolutely full, so I'm not surprised at all to know that that's the case. I wasn't aware that Black Marsh Road had been reduced to phone in first before you show up. So uh, I know that's not going to help right, you today. phone in first before you show up. They don't even want you to show up. 
There's no in-person appointments at all. And I mean, I went on their website and, and because I figured that I know some clinics do do the virtual phone-in because since COVID and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there was no information on that whatsoever. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm suffering. I, I really am suffering. I go to the ER. I mean, who knows how long we're going to be waiting there suffering, hearing stories every day, horror stories. I mean, I'm trying to avoid that place as much as I can, but it's got to the point now where I think I just might have to go sit in the air for 12 or 13 hours just to just just to get seen. But this, it's a real problem, Patty. I mean, uh, you know, the, the price of groceries are going up, and for people to eat healthy is going to be very, very hard, especially come to winter, because the price of diesel now is way over $2 a, a gallon. I got a liter, sorry. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, you know, that's going to drive the price of groceries up. People are going to get sicker this winter. And they're not going to be able to have access to a doctor. It's going to be very dangerous. It already is, I would suggest, Justin. So I can understand where you're coming from. I hear these stories day in and day out. Um, have, you uh, mentioned I'm at for- the point now, Patty, where I don't see a future for myself in this province. I really don't. At the state that what it's in now, it's just go, going downhill, and there's nothing to stop it. I mean, some of the best and brightest people I've met are Newfoundlanders, but somehow we elect to stun this people to run everything i i just uh, i don't know why it just amazes me i'm not sure what to say to that because i i do know that i check in on the situation in, in particular healthcare across the country and it seems like everybody is struggling with the exact same reasons to different levels of severity that's for sure so just oh, yeah, absolutely. have you ever had a family doctor here when's the last time you actually had a, a doctor that you could call their clinic and see them personally gee last time i had a family doctor oh my uh I don't know, probably eight nine years ago. Yeah. Passed away, I believe. Are I you on so a I list? Was, I was a young lad. Are you on a list to try to get a family doctor so that this concern can be addressed a little bit more clearly and easily? Well, I, I, I'm in a clinic now, but uh, that's, that's located in Central. So the only uh, the only uh, time I get to speak to the doctor is, is, is virtually. And the last two or three times that I've had an appointment with them, they just you know take this pill and double up and then let us know how it goes and then that's it and i mean i call in again they put me on another pill there's just nothing's helping i'm gonna go to try to get a second opinion from a different doctor to see if it can change it but there's it's no second doctors around I'm going to try to help you out here with a clinic that might be able to take a patient. The caller just called Dave and spoke to him and said that the clinic on, at Lawton's on Tops Road is now taking patients. So when you hang up with me, call them, see if you might be able to get lucky enough to get on their patient roster and see a doctor in that clinic. And you mentioned virtual care. Have you tried to use virtual care to see if that at least kickstarts the process for you? Yeah, I have, but uh, it's, it just doesn't work out that way all the time. Okay, but try that clinic. Uh, call them, Lawton's, at uh, Topsail Road. Uh, the caller says they're taking patients, which I think is really good news, and I'm sure you won't be the only one who's picked up the phone to make that particular call. And if I you're interested... hang up quick before, uh, before there's 20 other people listening to this call. Anyway. Okay, and Google Medicuro, M-E-D-I-C-U-R-O, oh, Medicuro. Yeah, that's, that's, the one, that's the one I use, see? Okay, I'm just trying to be helpful here. But call oh, that yeah, clinic... Medicuro is great. There's, there's, <clears> it is awesome, but there, there's certain things that you, know, you need to be there physically to, to, to see your doctor. I understand. Call that clinic. I'll let you hang up now. Make that quick call. Let me know how you make out. All right, Patty. Have Good a luck. Grand day. You too. Bye-bye. Um, let's go to line number two. Philip, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Grand. How about you? Not bad. I, am. I was on the telegram on the front page, and uh, there was an accident on 
he ran away to Tuesday to say, well, money going in the Tuesday about one o'clock. And I was home and watching TV and heard the big bang. And I told the girlfriend, I said, see what was on the go. And here was an pure driver. He did a utility pole and broke it. That's the picture I saw with the red SUV or minivan or something that toppled the pole and the driver ran away. Is that the story? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was the, yeah. Well, he was uh, with two of them and he fled on foot. And uh, I don't know if the, I know I was reading the driver got charged for drinking and uh, wild and tears. And I don't know about the second passenger, but like the uh, cops uh, put him in custody and didn't let him go uh, like a few hours later. And uh, I don't know if he's on the guitar. I was only just like reading it. And uh, you should, like, if you're in here, you should know if don't get behind the wheel. Uh, I'd say 4,000 pound car, but like, some people, I, I don't want to be stupid or on the phone. You, you should know, don't get behind the car, get a taxi or get something to uh, pick you up. Yeah, look, I mean, we all know better, right? The messaging has been drilled into our heads. If you drink, don't drive. It's as simple as that. And yet we see it repeatedly. And I don't know where we are on the comparative from province to province, but we know it's a problem here. And a friend of mine makes this comment regarding drunk driving, and I think he's right. How many of the folks that get behind the wheel after consuming alcohol are alcoholics? And their alcoholism has driven not only to the amount of drinking that they do, but the bad decisions that they inevitably make. And I think he's probably right. Yeah, right. And even the, like, uh, uh, raw uh, RNC said, like, even the spoke, spokesperson gets on TV. If you're going to drink, leave the car at home. Or leave the car, say, anywhere here in downtown or say the hospitals or anywhere you want and get someone to come and pick you up then you know where your car is too but when people like have stupidity they shouldn't they shouldn't get behind the wheel and know like you said knows the difference mm-hmm. and, and like and it looks good on if they get charged their license is taken away their insurance will go up but if you want to get another car and that's like pops right up okay well you can't get another car until your car is paid off until you get to savage then then don't drink drop next time I mean, just think about so many times we've seen the story where so-and-so in court for their fourth uh, impaired driving, their fifth, their tenth. There was a story a while ago, but he, I think it was with his eleventh, and he was crying the blues that he shouldn't be uh, incarcerated because he had some other outstanding health concerns. But we know the difference, you know? The message is clear. Everybody knows it, but yet so many people just ignore it. And we all know it, unfortunately, to be true. Uh, Philip, would you like to add anything else before I say goodbye this morning? No, that's all. I'll just run up and put it out and see if anyone wants to comment. Absolutely, and they're welcome to do it. Thanks for your time. All right, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, before we get to the break, based on Justin's call and so many other people's calls, when you can share some information that will be helpful, share it with me or Dave, we'll get it out to the listener. And I want to uh, say thank you to Wally out of the Family First Medical and Women's Health Clinic. So there's a walk-in clinic Monday to Friday from 8.30 to 11 at the Cowan Top School Medical. You can call them at 368-2115. So a walk-in clinic Monday to Friday from 8.30 to 11. Cowan Top School Medical, 368-2115. You'll see 
uh, either Dr. Al Badush and or Dr. Al Sakita. So once again, 368-2115. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Bob's here to talk about the oil business. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number four. Bob, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, Patty, I noticed that Alberta was proposing building a pipeline to the Atlantic coast. I mean, if that's not the irony of ironies, it's like bringing coals to Newcastle. I mean... Uh, but when has the province of Alberta... But I'm not so sure I follow this. So the province is proposing something? Is this recent, or are we talking about the old proposal that was Energy East pipeline? Oh, it could be. Now, I only heard it recently, so when I heard it, it might be, when it might be recently, right? Well, Energy East has been cancelled uh, for many, many years, and that was a variety of reasons. You know, basically, the city of Montreal and their mayor, Denny Cordaire, pretty much put the final nail in that particular coffin. And there was all sorts of commentary about the time it took for approvals and blaming it on the feds and all that, but there was a bunch of different reasons why that got cancelled, and many people still bemoan it. But So what's your point about Alberta wanting to bring their oil east? Well, that's the way I heard the announcement that it was going to be. They wanted to bring their oil to the coast, Atlantic coastline through pipes, and uh, Quebec was objecting to it. But uh, and they're talking about removing emissions from the air. It seems like they're still active and still lobbying to, uh, for their oil to get the juice, you know. And, uh, be a player, a, a bigger player than they already are. And my point is, we don't seem to be, uh, you know, we, all the oil we got down here, we don't seem to be uh, uh, fighting for our rights. We're all, we're all accepting the climate change. What are you uh, talking someone, about, Bob? What, what, fighting for rights meaning what? Sorry? Well, anyway, I'll, I'll just keep going and maybe I'll make sense somewhere along the line. Uh, I see someone propose that the uh, climate change people and the oil companies and the politicians get together and try to iron out about producing more oil. And uh, I mean, with everything that's going on in the world, uh, I noticed your caller Charlie said that we're all in a bubble when we don't recognize climate change. But if you don't recognize what else is going on in the world, I mean, uh, Biden is scrambling for oil, and uh, uh, Iran can't. Uh, Iran can produce oil immediately, but uh, they're sending drones over to the Ukraine, and they got a revolution going on there. And it seems like democracy is against dictators, and the democracy and the dictators are using their oil for blackmail. And uh, Canada is the only one that got all the oil available in among the Allies, and they won't produce it and for their allies. But I'm not sure if I'm following. Any sense? Maybe a little bit, but so. I'm not sure what you mean about the Americans clamoring for oil. The reality is some of the OPEC members are manipulating the price per barrel by reducing production. And in this country, uh, last quarter, Canada produced more oil than ever in its history, 
ever. So this all this bit about the oil industry is dead here. I don't get it. And fighting for our rights here, I think is how you put it in this province, the last uh, application for to be released from an environmental assessment happened. It might be the biggest oil field in Newfoundland's history if it ever gets produced by Equinor out in the Flemish Pass. There is no other application. What's interesting about that? So the uh, Impact Assessment Ag- Agency of Canada, that's the new oversight body, environmental assessments, there is exactly zero proposals in front of them. Zero. Not for fields, not for expansions, not for pipelines. Zero. Interesting. Well, maybe we could be trying to appeal to the oil companies and, and going after them and you know, trying to make deals with them and and then and then applying for uh, licenses, you know. But we don't do that, so though. We don't seem to be very active. We don't seem to be talking about it. But the provinces don't do that, though, Bob. Is it on, or are we not trying? Or? No, the provinces don't do that, though. The provinces don't apply for applications for those types of things. Proponents do. Companies do. Provinces don't. And, in, you know, just for the purpose of information, when it comes to trying to encourage exploration, they've done a bunch of that kind of stuff in the recent past. For instance, like when you made a deposit at the CNLOPB, for a land sale and you did not explore then you forfeited the money now we're giving it back even when ExxonMobil talked about uh, doing some exploration and drilling a few holes the, if they drill three holes then they could see as much as 80 million dollars flow back to the company in abatement remittance from the province so the money's being dangled. I mean, the land sale, even though it might not be the most attractive parcel of all time, way up north off of Labrador, zero bids last time. Apparently, it's going to be a bit more robust offering from the CNLPB this year. But I don't know what the province does. Even when they got back Terra Nova back on track, forfeited all kinds of royalties and put all kinds of money into the pocket of the oil companies just to see that project continue. Then there was $45 million given to Husky to try to keep West White Rose extension alive. So I don't know exactly what people think the provinces need to do to encourage these things because they're dangling lots of money. We have the documented seismic program that shows billions of barrels of oil out there, so I'm not really sure what people think should be done to enhance the future of. How come the Chancellor of Germany was uh, asking Trudeau for oil? He admitted he wanted oil from Canada. No, he didn't. He wanted liquefied natural gas. Okay. Uh, and what about that? Have we got, is any of that available? I yes. mean, they were putting it back down into the, pumping it back down into the holes where the oil came out of. That's what happens in the offshore. There's a bit of flaring. They pump a, ba- a bunch of back in because, unlike, say, in the Gulf of Mexico, if you punch a hole, the oil will gosh out. That's not how it works here. It has to be pressurized to be pumped out. So they do indeed, whether it be water or gas, gets pumped back in to push the oil up and out. Uh, but liquefied natural gas is a huge opportunity in this country. I read one story last week, week before, whenever it was, that we're sitting on tens of billions of dollars of immediate opportunity in liquefied natural gas. There is one approval for a facility in Kitimat, B.C that even though the approval has been granted, if I'm wrong here, because I tripped this up one time in the past, the approval has been granted, but no one started to build a facility yet. So, yes, there's an LNG opportunity in this country for sure. Yeah, well, why aren't we trying to get in on that? And uh, if uh, the is asking for oil and we got or gas, natural gas, and we got natural gas, he was down here, I mean... Uh, we could have talked to him then, couldn't we, about that? 
Okay. I think it's a national story more than it is a story here because people don't want to hear some of these things, but this is what's going on. None of the operators offshore are doing or saying much about the want to produce their gas. They have a break-even mark, whether it be how, much, how many dollars per MMB to you. But, you know, there's a, a, a plan in place to pipe it into Placentia Bay. I don't know if that's going to happen, but the, the producers of oil here haven't really said much about gas. They, of course, always look at it. If they can make a buck at it, they'd love to do it. The province is working on a new, a new gas royalty regime. But it's funny how you don't hear much from the producers about gas. I wonder what, uh, say, your caller, Charlie, would think about promoting or wanting uh, Newfoundland oil. It seems like the climate change people, Charlie said, we're, we're all living in a bubble. We all know about the hurricanes and the wildfires and everything, but I think uh, what we're seeing going on in the world now outweighs, you've you got to put all of it together, the war and... Uh, but the war is an argument that people are using as if there's an immediate opportunity for us, when there's not. I mean, to try to produce LNG to satisfy a German market, let's just say, for instance, that takes years, years, not this winter, absolutely years for that to even be possible. So I get it. There's an LNG opportunity, and reducing emissions in this world is a must. It just is. There's going to be the transition into full-on alternatives. I get it. The oil business isn't going away today. People talk about the carbon emissions of our offshore oil, you know, at the production stage far less than any other production of oil, producing oil in this country, way less than the international averages. But of course, that also includes the downstream end user carbon emission that has to be calculated. So yes, it's low emission at the, the area of production, but that doesn't mean it doesn't emit down the line, because of course it does, but this might be better or so-called cleaner than other oil sources, especially, say, for instance, the heavy crude coming from Alberta. So yeah, the opportunities are there, but the industry also has to drive that opportunity. You know, it's, it's hard to watch what's going on in the world, you know, with uh, Iran sending drones over to, to uh, Ukraine and blowing the hell out of everything. That's hard to watch. And they got oil that can be produced right away. You know, our, all our enemies got oil. There's no shortage of oil, though, Bob. There's more oil than people know what to do with. That's why they yeah, do things like they curb production to boost the price. So it's not that there's a shortage of oil. No, it's using our oil instead of uh, 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 Iranian oil or Saudi Arabia, OPEC oil, and Russian oil. Russia just blew up their pipes so that we wouldn't have their oil. They're doing a great favor for the climate change people. Aren't and that pipeline was gas. Yeah, natural gas. Yeah. yeah. I uh, got to get to the break, Bob. Last word, yours. Go ahead. No, I did pretty good to get that much on me. <laughs> You're all right. Thanks for the call, Bob. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, pay equity legislation, Landlord Tenants Act, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Uh, welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Marilyn, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, I just wanted to make some comments on pay legislation. First of all, I'm not 
a politician. I'm not a labor leader. I'm not an expert in any of the terminology, but I am a person who has gone through uh, the process through the Human Rights Commission for about five years. So a couple of points that I want to make in terms of the legislation is not necessarily specific to my case, only in general. On my case, I was not successful, uh, but I know that Mary Shortall made a comment uh, regarding uh, the undervaluing of jobs performed by women. And if the Federation of Labor needs a poster child for undervaluing of women's work, I certainly am that person. Uh, I, I'm going to base it on a few issues. First of all, the time the process takes. Uh, the next thing is the cost. And the new pay equity legislation uh, that was just introduced, I don't see a whole lot of difference in it than what it was. Because really what we need is legislation that values women's work, not necessarily uh, they call it pay equity, but it sounds more pay like pay equality legislation. Uh, I would like to see legislation that actually recognize the value of women's work. Yeah, what does and that I mean? I don't see that. What does that mean, though? Uh, because usually with equality means that it's equal for same or similar. But equality for value, you could be in a position, for example, I was an instructor. And because I wasn't a instructor that could operate equipment, my value of my instruction to an apprenticeship program was not equal to that of my instructors. Or at least that's what, that's what the decision found. But, but the biggest issue with any legislation that's available to us, whether it's pay equity or whether it's any other legislation, is the cost. And the Human Rights Commission is based on the fact that you can represent yourself. That may be... That may be on paper, but I can assure you when you're going up against an organization who has a lawyer, lay people cannot do that. And the costs are exorbitant. Uh, my case had a nine-day hearing. So anyone that understands the costs associated with hearing, uh, that that's very expensive to do. Uh, the other part of it with with the case is that um, the commission actually lost a lot of valuable information for the commission itself, for the government now who's introducing pay legislation. There was nobody from the commission or government or anything that showed up for five minutes of the nine-day hearing. Mine, unfortunately, was not recorded. Uh, it was not live-streamed. There was no uh, publicity about it whatsoever. So lots of valuable evidence and law got lost. So Marilyn, what? who were you working for? The government? Uh, no, I wasn't working for the government. My case is posted on the Human Rights Commission website. It was just posted this winter. 
but but the the issue is more to me is not even specific to my case. It's if we are going to introduce legislation where women's work is valued in this province, then I think we need to have more engagement and consultation and understanding what that is. Because most people, even though the legislation is there and now they're making new legislation, you really can't afford to represent yourself. You cannot afford to be a woman or a man for that matter, but you can't afford to be a woman, go through Human Rights Commission, need a lawyer and actually do that. So so before they go through with legislation, I would like to ask the government and the minister and anyone else who's involved in this legislation that there's something put in place so we can actually afford to go through the process but, because it is very long yes, and it okay. is very expensive. But that's the purpose, is that we avoid Department of Labor and Arbitration and Human Rights is if indeed there's pay equity legislation that's put in place. But this one is so specific to core government that even this does not cover any circumstance that you've described here this morning. That's one of the shortfalls as exactly. per many people who are talking about this legislation. Also, you know, very it's very unlikely that it will deal with the long-term issues of wage gap issues it does not deal with the private sector you're much more likely to see a private sector wage gap versus the public sector many positions of course will be negotiated with collective bargaining so this one is very very tightly specific there's also people in in the community at large that are talking about the lack of consultations whether it be with organized labor and otherwise as how they arrived at this legislation but it is very targeted it does not deal with anything outside of core government and even inside of core government there is obviously still a potential problem there because Minister Cody herself said that they're only 85% compliant with pay equity and most of that because of a job evaluation or job evaluation system and that's fairly old too that's about seven years old itself so if there's a problem of 85% com- uh, compliance in the core government sector you know it extends well beyond that so to include circumstances like yours if indeed it did cover it we would be able to avoid things like costly and timely hearings with or time-consuming hearings with the Human Rights Commission so uh, I Pretty sure I understand your point, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Take good care of yourself, Marilyn. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, she's right to point out there is a difference. There's absolutely a difference between equality and equity. There is. Basically, equality, we give the same resources for the same opportunities, men or women. Equity is that we're all impacted by different circumstances. Even if you allocate the exact same resources, it doesn't mean you're going to reach an equal outcome. You know, the picture that is used wide and far is equality will be so you have a six-footer, a five-footer, and a four-footer trying to look over the fence at a ball game. They're all given the exact same height box. So the, the shorter kid can't see over the fence. When equi- an equity would be that you're given the box the size required for you to see over the fence. I think that's one of the easy descriptors that people use for equality versus equity. Let's go ahead and uh, take a very... First, I'm going to take this email because I know this is just a complaint. All right. This from the Topsa Road Medical Office, uh, and the manager sends a note, says, This morning it was announced by you that Topsa Road uh, Medical was taking new patients. Nope. We are, in fact, not taking new patients. The office should be advertising as Calvin Topsa Medical, which is exactly what I said, so guaranteed this person wasn't listening, which is above Lawton's on Topsa Road, which is what I said. Their phone number is 709-368-2115, which is what I said. Please clarify this information as soon as possible. It's affecting our clinical practices due to the influx of calls. Okay. 
What I said was the Cowan Topsail Medical 368 2115 is above Lawton's on Topsail Road. So happy to reiterate exactly what I said earlier. It's unfortunate that you're being inundated with calls, but that's really not on me. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the president of the Federation of Labor. That's Mary Shortle. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? Good, thanks. So I, I just heard snippets of your previous conversation. There's a lot of discussion around the Packerty legislation, obviously. Um, and our Federation has weighed in on that discussion. It, it's, it's a bit shocking, quite frankly, uh, that the legislation is tabled before any real true consultation takes place. Uh, because there's been a lot of people, particularly in the labor movement, but also advocacy groups, lots of others who've been doing this work for a long time. And uh, the, the Jerry Rogers and her uh, private members bill 2017 set that uh, in motion and gave some time for government to be able to assemble all that and put together a really good piece of legislation that would address exactly what you said, the inequity that exists in the, the jobs predominantly done by women. Uh, and not men. And so there's uh, there's, there's uh, an awful lot missing from this piece of legislation, which is very unfortunate because we had a um, a good opportunity to address it. I think the, the biggest uh, flaw of it, and I think you've identified that already, is that it doesn't uh, even address any of the issues in the private sector. And that means that there's going to be thousands of uh, predominantly women in, in those undervalued, underpaid jobs uh, that will not see any benefit of this. In fact, you know, there's a very small segment of the population that may benefit from it. Uh, but there's uh, but there's a lot of concerns. Um, you know, it doesn't actually define pay equity in a way that uh, talks about the systemic elimination of the systemic gender discrimination, uh, which is really the reason why pay equity legislation needs to exist. It only it doesn't apply to the private sector, which is a, a huge flaw. It doesn't provide for any involvement of unions in the process, and even international guidelines like from the International Labor Organization says very clearly that if you're establishing pay equity legislation, it requires collaboration from employers and unions and the workers uh, or the representatives uh, and government and to make sure that the legislation is very tight um, before any regulations are addressed. So I don't know if there's any uh, thing that's going to happen. Government is talking about consultation now after the fact. Um, I, I don't know if that means they're going to amend the legislation or if they're going to put everything in the regulations, which is problematic. Because also, uh, in in the from what I can see from the legislation that was tabled yesterday, it, there doesn't even seem to be any real enforcement of pay equity rights. It's uh, unilaterally. Uh, conducted by employers. Uh, there's the only requirement is the requirement to report. There's no enforcement mechanism in that piece of legislation. There is in the pay transparency one, which is uh, is fine for individuals who are uh, seeking to find employment so that they can find out uh, what the pay scales are. But there's no real uh, direction about how you set up 
your uh, your pay equity committees within uh, within the workplaces, how you make a plan, um, how uh, job evaluation may differ from workplace to workplace, and how you how you do that. So th- there's a lot to be concerned about. And I think really um, government may have missed an opportunity to, uh, as you said, actually remedy a situation that's been uh, growing in this province that was exposed uh, through COVID of the huge gender uh, wage gap that exists. And also the, the, the jobs that are done predominantly by women in this province that are seriously undervalued. And I'm not sure... Uh, that this legislation is going to address that. Yeah, uh, and I don't know how it can, Mary. So this feels yeah. like a one step at a time if I hear how the comments came from the various ministers representing this legislation. If it only uh, constitutes pay equity in core government, then, of course, there's lots of people working for the government outside what is referred to as core government. It has nothing to do with the private sector. And even when we get down to what people say is undervalued physicians, uh, jobs in this world that are done predominantly by women that are undervalued, undervalued, Paid. How does legislation even deal with that? Because that sounds much more like a dollar per hour issue versus an equity issue. How do you change the water on the beans for, let's say, for instance, home care, early childhood educators, even though there is some move afoot with early childhood educators to pay them more? So how does legislation actually address that? Because that sounds a lot like a minimum wage conversation to me. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's pay equity is one tool, right? I mean, obviously, there's other tools, and I know the minister talked about that during the uh, the press conference, you know, child care and minimum wage and all those things. But if you have real pay, real strong with teeth, like the federal government, like Quebec and Ontario has, and even to some extent, uh, although it's only in the public sector, some of the other legislations actually talk about a process that evaluates jobs. So if you apply pay equity to every single workplace, uh, say with you know, six or more employees or 10 or more employees like the federal government does, uh, and and you uh, establish a way of dealing with uh, with evaluating the work that's done in that particular workplace, uh, and you judge it against a set of criteria that that's been agreed upon, um, it can work. And what it does, it actually looks at the value of say ch- early childhood educators as a, as a sector. Say, and I'll use that for an example because they're predominantly women, and another job uh, category classification uh, that in the same workplace, say, right, that would be primarily done by men, for example, and then you uh, apply that evaluation. And it's not just on education. It could be on um, uh, risk. It could be on a whole bunch of other uh, other criteria that's established at the time. Um, the minister outlined the ones that are currently used as job evaluation, like you said, in the older version of uh, what was negotiated with the public sector many years ago but that that you establish the working group or the or the pay equity committee that involves um, that involves all all people in the workplace you uh, you you create a plan you look at the job classifications and and where there's predominantly male or where there's predominantly female you look at the value of the work that's done in each of those job uh, classifications and then you do calculate the total compensation as a, a dollar per hour I guess for each job classification, and you determine if the differences in compensation between those jobs of equal value need to be addressed. And if they do need to be addressed, then there's an adjustment in the wage. And yes, 
uh, initially, it does cost an awful lot of money, and it cost uh, it cost a lot less probably than the total amount of money uh, that's being paid out uh, right now by the provincial government. But it's also been found by the Supreme Court of Canada that pay equity is a human right. Uh, in response to the federal task force uh, on pay equity in 2014, the Supreme Court said it's a human right and it can't be used as women, half the population, can't be used as shock absorbers in an economy. So so uh, the governments have an obligation to lead by putting in sound legislation and then employers have a responsibility to make sure that over time that's adjusted. It's not going to happen overnight, obviously. Uh, there's lots of criteria over how that can happen, um, you know, how, and then the reporting is, is and the evaluation is very important. And those are key components that form the basis of really strong legislation. And then the regulations help prop up yeah. all of that. I think it gets complicated, well, for me anyway, and maybe I'm just a simple-minded person. For me, it gets complicated when we have a hard time factoring in other things that happen on various job sites or places of work, whether it be for provision or subsidy for childcare, mental health supports, training, uniform coverage, benefits packages, sick days, all of those things which have to be included when we look at your overall, whether it be remuneration and or benefits, because it's not just about the dollar per hour, because if I work somewhere for 20 bucks an hour and my buddy works somewhere else for 20 bucks an hour, but they have a childcare space or he gets additional training or they pay for his uniform. If he gets two weeks and I get one week, he has 10 sick days I have five sick days. So there's just so much to it to ensure that people are being valued for work offered, that are being treated in an equitable fashion. That's what gets complicated for me. That's right. I mean, but it's right. And when you look at how you evaluate those job classifications, you're looking at individual employers doing each of them doing their own evaluation. So if it's a construction site, for example, and you have that employer is looking at uh, that job site and those classifications and all the benefits and wages and compensation that are done uh, in predominantly, although pay, pay equity really is about the dollar per hour wage, but if you look at um, how you're evaluating those jobs, uh, for example, the clerical section of a construction site or a construction company may be predominantly women. Uh, the construction piece itself, you know, traditionally is, is uh, predominantly male. So you look at uh, how you evaluate that, and it's up to that individual employer working with the unions or the workers or the or the pay equity committees that are normally legislated to exist uh, when there is a, a imposed legislative pay equity plan to look at all that, to create the plan. And there's lots of guidelines around that. Government also, I noticed the federal government has a huge guideline for employers and unions about how to sit down and do that in every workplace. And it takes a lot of time. And it takes, uh, for example, I know uh, at Air Canada, when the, the first federal pay equity legislation existed, that's where I worked at the time. And they they were required to look at all the job classifications within a, a huge national airline and make sure that uh, that they were doing not just in, in that time not just pay equity but also employment equity but those are those are big cumbersome pieces of work for employers but at the end of the day it it satisfies that that right that 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 
fixes up the discrimination that's been decades, if not hundreds of years, uh, in in the workplaces because those particular jobs um, that tend to be women dominated have have traditionally and historically been undervalued and underpaid. And so that's also very good for the economy once uh, once you balance that out. And I love what you said about you know how the difference between equality and equity because you know equality is you're right treating everyone the same equity it means you have to treat people differently sometimes in order to achieve that equality and that's what pay uh, pay equity legislation is designed to do it's one tool uh, but it's a very very important tool and there's lots of uh, best practices you know when you look at other legislations there's lots of help um, for governments or individual employers who are putting together uh, pay equity plans and it's, it's a process but when done right it makes a huge difference to women uh, and to families and uh, and to lifting them uh, up uh, because it's more mm-hmm. often uh, most often the women's wages that get raised but not always uh, sometimes it works in the reverse as well mary appreciate the time safe travels thank you thank you all right bye-bye very short is the president of the federation of labor before we go let's go to line one caller you're on the air line number one caller hello 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 petty uh, is okay if i use my name again fire away okay petty my name is thomas royal i called you earlier the year of, i was very nervous on the phone call and i apologize for that don't uh, worry about that at all go right ahead what's going on with the landlord tenancy act and how our government is treating our senior citizens and low-income people. Everything that I'm about to say to you is the God and honest truth, and I have proof and pictures to prove of what I'm telling you. Uh, this, these landlord, uh, slum landlords, I apologize for stuttering every now and then because I'm just trying to get through it. Uh, these slum landlords are getting away with this way, way too long, and the Landlord Tenancy Act favours the landlord, as we all know. I talked to the Landlord Tenancy Act, one of the officers yesterday, which I'm not allowed to mention their names, and they told me that it is equal, that the landlord and the tenant are treated equally. We all know that that is 100% false. 100% false, Patty. And the thing is that the situation that I that this landlord put me into is very, very poor. I had to move out into a small 31-foot RV trailer. I don't have room to put all my stuff in, which is still left at that house. I tried. I, I have no way or no money to put this stuff in storage. So the landlord got the permission, the rights from the Landlord Tenant Act to have that stuff sold. It's not a bandit. It was put there because I had no place to put it. And, Patty, this really needs to stop. And the Premier knows what's going on because he had pictures and letters that I sent to him. I sent it to the NDP office. And also what went on there the winter with me, Patty, when I emailed you, I had an email sent to you about my situation living in that house, and that was last winter. And I put the same complaint into the, the social services, the Premier's office, NDP office, and I also called the Premier's office in Ottawa, Trudeau's office, and put my complaint in there. So, Patty, I'm up to my eyeballs. I mean, I'm up. I'm stressed out enough now as it is with everything's on the go, and I'm just letting the people know, the senior citizens and the low-income people of Newfoundland, that I'm 63 years old and I'm doing everything in my power to make sure 
that the senior citizens and the low-income families of Newfoundland gets what they deserve. And if they think that one man cannot change these problems, all I'm going to say is one word, and that's Bardo, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and how he got the seal hunt stopped. And I'm willing. My first step is right here on your open line show, and next step from that is going on. And I tried to get a lawyer to look at this here. Uh, the only chance I got is legal aid lawyer. And in my experience with legal aid lawyers, Patty, have never, ever went to favour of the person either. In a very little things, yes, but when it's something serious, it never goes to that person. So I'm hoping to get funding and the proper funding so I can go out of the province and get the proper lawyers to handle this case because I will be suing this landlord and also the Landlord Tennessee Act, the person that favoured this. I put a complaint in before all of this started to a young girl working with the Landlord Tennessee Act. I went right into St. John's office of Mount Pearl, sat down and told him what was going to happen and how it was going to happen and all of a sudden she was taken off the case and there's other one that voted, Albert, no, or I apologise for that. I mentioned, uh, sorry I mentioned that name, but I hope that it okay. didn't get out there. Go ahead. But, uh, you know, and Patty, all I'm trying to do is help these senior citizens because I'm sick and tired of seeing how the government lies to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador and how that is affecting me so much because I see it all my life. And, Paddy, there's other stories that I will be phoning your station about, true stories of what happened here in Newfoundland. And one of them is our inshore fishery. And that will be another time and another story that I will be bringing up to you and, your, and letting you know and letting the public know what's really going on in our province. And I've promised that I will do what I said I'm going to do to help the seniors and the low-income families of this province. I will do it the same way as Bardo done with the seal hunt. And it's not that to hurt Newfoundlanders, it's to help Newfoundlanders. You're welcome back on the program, Thomas. Thank you for this. Thank you, Paddy, and I appreciate your time. Anytime. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about environmental regulations for the provinces offshore. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, line three, Doc, you're on the air. How are you, Paddy? Not too bad, I suppose. You? Uh, it's good, boy. It's a beautiful day out. Uh, is it? Maybe not on Camelot Road. It but is. That's climate change. Here we go. Good start. <laughs> well, listen, uh, are, you hearing any, are you hearing anything on the review of the PUB and the formula that they're using for gas and oil, energy prices in Newfoundland and Labrador? No, and I talk about it all the time. We were told there would be some sort of transparency, availability, and da-da-da-da-da. I don't know if I've, I've never seen one. You know, the same old news releases with the same old market, in, uh, market factors, da-da-da-da-da-da. But like I think uh, I saw a tweeter point out, and rightfully so, just because we know what the ingredients were in the cake doesn't make it taste any better. No, and, you know, they made the announcement in July, I think it was July, that they were going to review the formula. Now, July, August, September, October, we're nearing the end of October. We're getting into the dead of winter, and people are really, really concerned about uh, driving their cars and heating their homes, and they want to know whether or not the current formula is as valid as the previous formula that was the formula by the Petroleum Products Commission or whether or not there's any difference, whether or not it's different for us than it is for other Atlantic provinces. And, I mean, this information should be public anyhow. 
and there's nobody on the PUB willing to talk to the public or answer questions or even explain how it is that they use the interruption formula, for example, three times in a day and a half. Now, how is that reasonable? And if it is, explain it to us. And so the province agreed to do this review. We're three and a half months in, and it's about time that somebody spoke up, be it the Minister of Energy or be it the chair of the PUB. The two big ones now, and of course it's always a seasonal issue, right? You know, yeah. the summertime it was gas, and of course a bit of d- diesel tug in in the conversation, of course, as pertains to the price of food and whatnot, but now it's gone from gas to home heating fuel. I mean, that's the conversation that has got to be at the top of the pile, then followed by diesel, then gasoline. I know they're all needed uh, year-round, but you can kind of do something to change your habits regarding how many kilometers you drive in your car. You yeah. can't do anything about heating your home. Right, so that's where the exemption on the carbon tax has got to be continued on from the old Dwight Ball bilateral agreement with the federal government. If that doesn't happen, we've got ourselves a big problem. Oh, I mean, there's no question about that. If if this carbon tax business, the, the next levy, if it takes place, then uh, all hell should really break loose at that point in time because. For most people, it will make buying a litre of furnace oil almost an impossibility. And again, you know, everybody is really uh, positive about saying transparency, transparency. It's become the political byword these days that everything has to be transparent. And government agencies like the PUB should be transparent also. So if we can't get the information from the PUB, then we should get it from the Minister of Energy or he should get after the PUB. It's about time, I mean, three and a half months is more than enough time to review a formula and decide if it's still valid. Yeah, it's uh, the Minister responsible. I, th- I think you said, Sarah, totally, but that's the right answer. Uh, okay. Anyway, you want to talk about something else before we yeah, run out of time? Go ahead. I, uh, I listen to you talking to Bob and uh, I agree with Bob, you know, that uh, there are very few people here in Newfoundland Labrador right now on an ordinary person level who are beating the drum about the Newfoundland offshore and where it's headed into the future. And so I think Bob is right in saying that, that not enough people are making noise uh, all the noise that is being made is being made by people who are right-wing climatologists. And so they have the stage, and others are not willing to go up on that stage. And there's a lot of people classified under the, uh, under the word others. Now, what? my opinion, the, the problem for the Newfoundland and Labrador offshore is the uncertainty involved when it comes to oil drilling. It's not money. I think the the oil companies are flush with money. But you have to go back, and you and I have had this conversation. Go back to 2019, and in 2019, under the fundamental, well, now, under the fundamental decisions clause, Newfoundland Labrador has the final say on, uh, on environmental assessments. Now, that changed in 2019, and in 2019, the federal government made changes in the environmental legislation, which the Baal government refused to oppose, and that effectively gave the government of Canada control 
over offshore environmental assessments. So now we're out of the picture, and we saw that with Beta Nord. And on top of that, you have a statement by Stephen Gibo made a little while ago, and I can almost quote him. What he said was, it's up to the impact assessment agency, not the federal minister, to make decisions on future oil projects. <clears throat> and that approval process has become more stringent. So my point is, it's fine. We need to have environmental uh, uh, restrictions. We need that. They need to meet a certain criteria, but you can't start by making them an impossibility because if you make them an impossibility, then the industry is going to walk away. And I think that's pretty close to where we are right now. Well, I think people hear what they want to hear sometimes, Doc, and I know you'll understand that because as a former politician, that's exactly how the world works. Minister Gibo, uh, look, okay, there's two separate things inside the same breath there. If it is indeed the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada making final decisions, then what difference does it make what Stephen Gibo, a minister who, of course, ministers, whether it be provincially or federally, it's a turnstile. By the time the next oil application comes for this province, it's highly likely Gibo has nothing to do with that minister's office of environment, and he had a bit of a built-in bias before he was even appointed inside of this portfolio. So if it's going to be up to the impact assessment agency, then that's the right place for it to be. It should never be solely responsible of the minister to make those types of decisions because that comes with all sorts of political miscalculations and problems that you understand as well as I understand. The cake could be baked before the application even sees the ink dried on it. So if it's going to be a federal issue, it absolutely belongs in front of that impact assessment agency. I agree, and that is if both levels of government agree to leave it up to the Environmental Impact Assessment Agency. And and the danger is when a minister is able to say, okay, but we're not going to approve it. And, and with Beta Nord, we came very, very close to that when the minister took an extra month or month or two because he wasn't certain about whether or not he would approve the development. So I agree with you that we have an environmental impact, uh, impact assessment agency. Leave it alone. Let it do its job without any political interference, period, whether it is provincial or federal. Agreed? There's no one that can think possibly that the federal government won't be involved in energy-related decisions, given the fact that some of the parameters regarding consultations, environmental assessment, are absolutely led in sole part by the federal government, even when we talk about pipeline approval. And when the Trudeau Liberals saw it go to court, it's because they didn't follow through with the Harper playbook put forward by Prime Minister Harper about environmental consultations. And so we went back to scratch. What ended up happening? Me and you were going to pay about $20 billion for a pipeline that should... It should have never, never ended up in that state. So that the same thing could be said for the offshore. It'd be great if every bit of control was here. Same thing people say about the fishery. But I think coal 
monitoring, co-authority, co-jurisdiction makes a bit more sense because if you don't have required checks and balances in place, then we are making strictly political decisions and nothing but political decisions when there's got to be a place for environmental and careful consideration as opposed to simply whether or not it's a good political move. There are two different things. If we just make it political, then we are destined to make some terrible decisions. I I agree. So let me ask you a question. Sure. Just... (laughs) Just to get your opinion, when when the environmental legislation was brought forth, be it, let's say 2019, when certain changes were made, yeah. does that not mean, is that not political interference? And do, do you not think that uh, any upcoming changes in environmental regulations re- the impact assessment agency would not be influenced by the federal government, which now has pretty well the full authority there? Well, some of it was ruled on in court, which is not the federal government. Like, for instance, the pipeline issue, that was determined in the courts, not in the minister's office, not at the Impact Assessment Agency. There was consultation processes put in place by then-conservative pr- uh, Prime Minister Harper. They weren't followed through on. So there's going to be a smidgen or a dollop of politics and everything. But if you have the parameters as what they are inside the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, that takes as much politics out of it as we can. You're never going to get it all out because it's like sometimes you get blood on your white t-shirt. You can get some of it out, but you can't get it all out. So (laughs) I think that will continue. Therein lies the uncertainty. And what oil companies and energy companies don't like is uncertainty. I think they've come a long, long way in reducing assessments. Uh, They are continuing to do scientific and technological research and reducing uh, emissions. And uh, I I think there's got to be a reasonable path down the road of climate change where one form of energy gradually disappears as has happened in the past and another form of energy or forms of energy are developed to replace it. But you, you can't just all of a sudden pull down the, cu- the curtain and say, well, okay, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to do it the other way. But realistically, no one really thinks that's possible anyway. I know yeah. there's yeah. folks who would like to say that you can indeed flip a switch and everything changes tonight, but it, it can't. You know what's going to determine where oil gets produced, Doc? The capital markets, where people get the money. True. That will determine where people that, are pumping oil. That has oil. a lot to do with it, yeah. I know no question. But, and, and I, again, I'll finish with a my famous quote from the Sierra Club. Investing in oil and gas means investing in death and destruction. We can talk the extremes all, all we like, but the right. reality is the, ver- the vast majority of Canadians are somewhere inside of those polar opposite extremes. They just are. I and, agree. And so when, when oil companies are looking for capital to explore and produce, the people that they get the money from will go and have a very loud voice and carry the biggest stick in their history about where they're going to invest their money. And if, they, that, they, if that starts with human rights and regulatory bodies and environmental assessments and low carbon emissions at the site of production, that will be a big sell when I'm a producer going to, whether it be Goldman Sachs, whoever. They'll like look at that industry, very carefully. Huh? And I don't care what industry it is. It can be offshore. It can be hydrogen development. It can be whatever it is. Companies, before they invest, like certainty in the environment. Yeah, but there's no absolute certainty. We can't pretend there is for anything in this world. But the capital markets will determine where the capital money is invested. It just will. It's already happening. And we all know it to be true. Doc, i got to get going, but I appreciate the time. 
Thanks, Fatty. All the best. Bye-bye. You too. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking about student housing at Memorial University. There's been recently a move to eliminate the cap on the number of hours international students can work, which is obviously going to help them. And then we're going to talk about uh, a young fellow who doesn't qualify for school programs for children of the compromise of compromised folks. We'll see what that's about after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six and say good morning to the executive director at Monsu. That's the executive director of advocacy, student housing, uh, as Jawad Chowdhury. Good morning, Jawad. You're on the air. Good morning, line number six. Jawad, you're on the air. Is he potted up, Dave? On hold. Let's go. Line number five. Jenny, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. <clears throat> so yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm frustrated in my situation with my child going to school or not going to school, uh, and I honestly don't know where to begin. So we're into well into the seventh week of um, of school for the year, and my son is still not enrolled in a program because I've been told there's no program for him. So what are these circumstances? So I can understand what we're talking about. So um, there is a new program that was set up when Connect Ed, uh, sorry, when uh, when COVID um, started. It's uh, for for people who are compromised or have family members who are compromised medically. Um, and um, I actually didn't even know about it uh, until um, this past year after the lockdown, just after Christmas. And so when I found out my child qualified um, because I'm, I am compromised. And um, so he was approved for this connected school for two years. Um, and uh, he, he, went to school from February, I guess, until in connected until June. And I didn't find out until mid September, um, that, uh, that he didn't qualify. <laughs> um, so we were just waiting and waiting and waiting. And, um, then they're going to look into it and see if they can do an exception. And, um, <clears throat> I'm, I mean, as of this morning, I'm still being told there's no program for my child, uh, in grade seven. They said that they can connect me to the Google Classroom and send work to him that he can do at home and, and have him registered in the uh, in the junior high school uh, here. But the problem is, is who's going to teach it to him? I mean, they can give him all the sheet work, you know, worksheets they, they want. But, I mean, I don't have the ability to teach him. I'm not a teacher, and nor do I understand the, the, the new math or the, or, you know, uh, the other subjects really to teach it. So I'm just, I'm very frustrated. And, and I, I feel like, you know, here I am trying to get my child into school and the school board doesn't care. They don't, they do not care. It's in my opinion that he's out of school um, this long. Although I do get four messages a day telling me that he's not showing up for school. <laughs> I'm just, I'm really frustrated and I don't know where to turn. And so I thought I'd come this route and see if it makes a difference. Well, hopefully it does. Uh, so, doesn't qualify for a specific program. Who does qualify? Does well, the child have to be immunocompromised, or does well, it has nothing to do with the family? I'm a little bit confused. I'm sorry. It it was it was for the child and any uh, family members yeah, within the house. 
within the household uh, okay. initially. And I guess uh, mid-September they made a change that it's only for the child. Um, and so because of that, uh, he doesn't qualify. And so, I mean, I don't understand. So I send my child into a, a classroom of 30 people or, or kids, you know, or more, none of them social distance, wearing masks or, or following any of the recommended precautions. They're still recommended in schools, but apparently no no child does them, right, or follows them. No, there's no cohorts, that. no masking, no nothing. No. That's right. And, and the staff, uh, most of them do not either. So, um, you know, it's... it's I, I mean, it's a matter of time. I know that I'm probably going to be uh, sick with COVID, but so far, my child and I have managed to avoid it uh, because we still we we still limit where we go um, and and what we do. And when we do have to go out, we do follow the uh, you know the, the original uh, guidelines. So we've we've been lucky so far. I know that if I send them into that environment, that it's it's going to be just you know quick you know i'm I'm gonna get it and, I, and i'm i'm you know it's a it's a huge risk to take for me um that that i you know i could possibly be one of those people that that do not recover from covid um so i'm i'm you know i'm i'm nervous to send them back and i feel like they're they're putting this off so much so that i force they force me to send them into the into the school system you know um but my my question i guess uh, my questions are if you know in my child is the only you know if he's the only child in this situation why not make that one exception and if he's not then obviously this program is not set up in the correct way <laughs> jenny what does the program even look like for those who are accepted i mean how is it different than a, a regular classroom it's online uh, learning, Fully. so a teacher so a teacher would sit down with uh, with the kids online uh, and and teach them via like a Zoom kind of meeting. Um, so isn't that available for children, regardless of their immunocompromised situation themselves and or with their family? Can you not choose to have uh, instruction offered virtually? I've just, I don't know the answer to that question. No, right, no, you can't. You, I mean, I thought that I thought that you could, but apparently you can't. And so the situation was last year, my, my son was in elementary school and the principal of the Connect Ed told me that the reason he qualified for that last year was two reasons. I was compromised and that was, that was an acceptable reason then, but uh, that the elementary school that he went to did not have um, another program into place to, to help him uh you know learn in in school so apparently the school that he would be going to now if i were to send him back has an a, a program it's called a pass pass i can't remember what the acronym stand for but the pass program uh and so the connected principal has told me that because there's a pass program in the in this junior high school that he should be qualified through there and they would do the same thing so the principal of that school and the director of the Western School District tells me, no, this is not for somebody in Joel's situation. It's for, you know, it's for other other situations that has nothing to do with what what I, what you know my child requires. You yeah, know, I don't think pass has much to do with that specifically. I think it stands for 
positive actions, student success, something like that? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's getting children who otherwise aren't attending school back into the school system. Yeah, it, it, that's, that's it, part of safe and caring schools. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Understood. Well, I mean, accommodations on all sorts of different fronts inside school. We talk about inclusivity, learning disabilities on the spectrum, deaf, hard of hearing. And yes, if you are indeed immunocompromised or someone in your immediate household is, there are things that we have now had a much better understanding of what that actually means. And it's like, this is absolutely nothing to do with it necessarily, but I generally get a head cold early on in the school year. Why? Because my wife's a teacher. (laughs) So if bringing home just those little cold bugs, you can only imagine what it means for someone like yourself who is immunocompromised and accommodations that can and should be made. I don't know how many people employed by the English-speaking school district are involved in offering virtual education for children who qualify based on the parameters that are currently in place, but it's an interesting one. That's a number I can get, probably. Uh, Find out how many there are, what their caseload is. That's not the right way to put it. How many children they are teaching in that capacity? Is it all grades, K through 12? Let me see if I can figure out some of those numbers just to give it a bit more context. Yeah, no, no, I would, I'd appreciate it. And I mean, there's, I mean, we're, like I said, we're, we're at, we're coming to the end of the seventh week of, uh, of school and my child hasn't, um, hasn't heard from them other than, than, uh, myself getting, you know, two emails and two uh, telephone calls a day saying that he hasn't shown up. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's not helping. Uh, Jenny, let me yeah. do that little bit of digging and I'll try to speak to it on the show here in the next day or two when I get some numbers. Great. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Good luck. Okay, let's take a break, uh, half on time. When we come back, we'll see if we can indeed speak with the Executive Director of Advocacy and Student Housing at Munns Student Union. That's Jawad. Is it Jawad? Am I saying that properly? We'll try. We'll find out the correct pronunciation right after this. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number six, taking more to the Executive Director of Advocacy and Student Housing at Munsu. That's Memorial University of Newfoundland Student Union. Uh, good morning, sir. You're on the air. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I didn't say your name because I'm afraid to mispronounce it so badly. How do you? How do I say your name properly, sir? Uh, my name is Jawad Chowdhury. Jawad Chowdhury, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So the couple of things. We know there's a major housing crunch here in the city. The vacancy rate in Metro about a year ago was in and around 9%. Now it's about 3% and only getting worse day by day. How's it impacting newcomer students? Uh Thank you. Uh, so, you know, when the initial problem started earlier this summer, um, students were really struggling to find housing out when they left uh, the residence on campus. And so it just kind of continued throughout the fall semester. Um, and, you know, landlords are being ignorant to uh, tenant rights. Uh, and when it comes to students, uh, they are, you know, there's been reports of uh, the entire house being infested with bugs, fire ants, and other things like that, a stove malfunctioning, and landlords uh, have disregarded uh, to such uh, tenants' rights. And so students are really struggling, even to this day. Are we thinking or saying that some of the ignoring of the problems is because they're foreign students? Because if you look around the rental landscape, there's lots of stories of landlords not playing by what should be written and on unwritten rules for safe, sanitary properties? Uh, yes. Uh, it, it, you know, it, 
it has a big impact when someone moves here from a different country and it's their first semester and they can't manage housing. Uh, there's been there's been uh, students in my office who came here and were like, uh, I am 19 years old and my landlord won't offer me a lease agreement because he thinks I'm too young for a lease agreement. So, uh, you know, the, the ignorance runs all the way from offering a lease agreement to ensuring uh, that they're living in a proper condition. There's different uh, approaches taken to housing in different parts of the country, and some of it's about availability, some of it's about price, some of it's about thinking outside the box. And I know there was once a program at Memorial University that is currently a big feature at Simon Fraser University in BC. I don't know what it's called officially. It's, it's a home share plan. Seniors in particular would open up their homes to visiting students for them to rent off them at a cut rate for the provision of some work around the home, shoveling the driveway, clearing the walk, uh, mowing the lawn or taking out the garbage or a variety of things like that. Is there any sort of thinking outside the box at Memorial University to help ease this pain? There's no, uh, there's been no such effort uh, as of now. But uh, what you're saying seems like a very good idea. Uh, this can solve a lot of issues for international students and uh, just students traveling from other parts of the province. Uh, if they can have uh, an opportunity to live uh, at a reasonable rate uh, and also live in a family environment, it, it would really help them in the long run. Yeah, because uh, just to expand on that, at Simon Fraser, there's a real comprehensive safety component to it, vetting of the homeowner, vetting of the student, all sorts of issues that they're trying to make sure it's done in a safe fashion, which is important. For visiting students, whether it be out of province or out of country, how far up the list is a housing concern when they make their determination? You know, for a long time, Memorial University has been attractive for a variety of reasons. Good, pro -op, good co op programs, good reputation, but yes, it's the price of tuition has been very attractive, even though we know it's taken a big spike here in the last couple of years. So, what is housing file on the priority list for visiting students? Uh, you know, visiting students coming this semester, particularly, uh, struggled finding house uh, from like back home, wherever they're from. Uh, so multiple students had to land in St. John's, Newfoundland, and sort of stay in a friend's house or concert for a few days uh, before they could finally settle on their own place. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, uh, Memorial University has also not taken great steps to address that. Uh, our tuition's also gone up uh, significantly. International students are now paying uh, somewhere from $20, $20,000 to $26,000 for a professional degree. And so the influx of students coming in uh, from other countries uh, has decreased a little bit, but uh, housing still remains an issue. Yeah, absolutely it does. And it's all part of a perfect storm, isn't it? It's not just this year. In years past, we would see some housing concerns. But when things have changed, whether it be people cashing out on the hot real estate market or long-term rentals being converted to Airbnbs and they're now off the short-term rental market, it's become a strange old beast here to try to find housing for a variety of individuals, including students, whether they be from Gander or from Nigeria. So it's a big issue. I do want to move on to another topic before we run out of time, though, this morning, Joad. And this is about the elimination of the cap on hours that international students can work. You know, basically, I think the the subheadline was, we cannot use international students as labor pawns. It makes all the sense in the world. So why are they trying to keep up with the cost of rent and food and everything else? Talk us through exactly what this ban or the lift of the cap, pardon me, on the hours work could be. So, uh, you know, 
my students' union and Canadian Federation of Students have been advocating for fairness of international students for a very long time. And across the country, international students have uh, faced a lot of hurdles to access both secondary education and employment opportunities. So while like this change is welcomed, it is not a win for international students. Uh, it is, uh, again, the government using international students as labor pawns whenever they need them. Uh, it happened back during COVID uh, when uh, international students' limits were lifted and uh, they could work full time. Um, that was also made to address labor shortage. Uh, and, you know, uh, this time is no different. It's just an important move. I mean, if I'm able to have the loyalty and determination to my studies and employment opportunities where I can keep my head above water and still excel in school and still do some work and pay the bills and have some pocket money, it just makes all the sense in the world. A couple of quick ones before we run out of time. There was also a major concern as Canadians are lining up for passports, but it also had an implication on work visas or pardon me, study visas for international students. Is it getting any better? Uh, it's getting better for some students, uh, whereas uh, some other students are waiting for a month to receive their visa. And it, it's also not uh, only the visa problem. There's been um, one student, uh, as, as director of advocacy, I deal with a lot of international students. And so I'm seeing uh, this trend in uh, students, particularly from African countries, and they can't access or renew their passport, um, you know, Students from Nigeria are trying to apply for their passport and their study permit is expiring, but their passport is not here. So they cannot apply for a renewal of their study permit. Uh. So it's, it's an overall issue. It's, uh, this, this, uh, you know, students are in big trouble uh, this way because they're in trouble with the IRCC uh, because they don't have a permit. But at the same time, they cannot apply for a permit unless they have a renewed visa. So, uh, you know, it, it, goes, it goes a long way. Are there extensions being granted because of the backlog? Uh, so when a study permit expires, uh, students have a grace period of 90 days. Uh, however, in the 90 days, uh, it's, uh, the IRCC advises you to kind of gather your belongings and prepare to leave the country. Um, so, you know, if a student does not get their passport within the 90 days and cannot apply for study permit, they would potentially have to leave the country. All the while, there's been moves so that there's fast tracks towards permanent residency and uh, citizenship and what have you. Uh, last question for you. So we talk about labor shortage, skill shortage in the country and immigration as it pertains to ensuring that immigrants through the four different silos have skills we need. No more skills than coming out of post-secondary. So, and these could be whether we're talking about engineering grads or what have you. How formally does Munsu and the university track just how long and if international students attending Memorial University stay in this province, whether it be 12 months, five years, or whatever the case may be? Uh, I don't think uh, Munsu or the university has any tools to monitor uh, the percentage of students staying here, but from a general context, uh, students are not staying in this province because employment opportunities are not great. This is something I've heard from my peers and, uh, you know, you know, similar students that, that have uh, come here. Uh, so, yeah, students are not staying here. There's uh, almost, uh, you know, almost close to a 0% job employment opportunities, even 
the employment opportunities that they're finding very comparatively low compared to other provinces in Canada. So students are just moving outside, uh, going to Alberta or Vancouver for better wage living conditions. We appreciate you making time. Would you like to say anything else in, in conclusion before we say goodbye? Uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, if, you know, uh, we all know that uh, the uh, fee in Memorial University went up. Uh, federal government is cutting off uh, $68 million or so from the post-secondary education. Uh, and uh, this is making education in Newfoundland and Labrador highly inaccessible. So students are gathering on November 2nd for a provincial day of action where they're striking and walking out of classes to protest all these decisions. And so I just wanted to put it out to the, your audience there. Um, it, it, it's a protest. It's a province-wide protest. So uh, everyone is welcome to come out and support the students and, you know, advocate for more funding to our post-secondary education. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Jawad. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Take good care. Bye-bye. Ashwa Chowdhury, he's the executive, pardon me, executive director of Advocacy and Student Housing at Monsu. And it's not, okay. So the $65, $68 million being backed up by the province flowing to Memorial University and the consequential decision to raise tuition has been controversial. We all understand it to be true. And we can talk about it from wherever you'd like to come at it. It does, you know, and we think about how much money flows from memori- from the government to Memorial University. Say, for instance, in comparison to the province of Nova Scotia. Let's just use round numbers. These are not precise, and I'm not going to pretend that I can remember every single number in the world. But if it's around $300 million going to MUN, the same amount of money flows from the Nova Scotian government to university, except the funds like eight. So some of these things with a big whopping increase... We saw it coming. We did it to ourselves. There was no conversation around the sacrosanct uh, issue about uh, the the tuition freeze. So what we saw is fees increase, which, of course, are not applicable to a tax break as opposed to tuition, which is. So at some point, there was going to be something that was going to give. And it gave. And it gave in a hurry. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly elected in and serving the folks of Humber Bay of Islands. That's Eddie Joyce. Hi, Eddie. You're on the air. Good morning, Petty. Thank you again for taking my call. Pleasure. Petty, I'm calling again, and I refuse to just let it drop and let misinformation be put out there by the minister about the cataract surgeries and the wait list for Western Newfoundland. The minister made an announcement last week of 3,300 um, one-time surgeries to eliminate the wait list. Mm -hmm. 3,000 went to St. John's, less than 300 went to the Western, and part of that 300 to the Western numbers that, that he included were already in the schedule that was going to take place anyway. And and I just want to make it quite clear that if St. John's needs 3,000, do it. People should not go without their vision. There's absolutely, I'm not disputing, but there's some way you've got to take care of the West Coast. I mean, I'm getting calls from the Premier's District, Jerry Burns District, Scott Reed, Upfire, Lisa Dempster's District about people waiting. 
and and in the statement that the minister made, he he made a lot of false statements. Either he didn't have the information, or he did it to justify a bad decision. And putting seniors in a in a sad situation, to, in a deteriorating vision, it, it's just sad. And just one that the minister Osborne made that 90% of the patients on the west coast are within 112 days of the national average. It's just not true. It's absolutely not true. One phone call. I even gave him the number. Here, call to prove that's, fa- that's false. It's 100% inaccurate what the minister said to try to justify putting 3,000 in St. John's. If they need it, give it to them. Anybody should not be able to go with a vision, or go without vision w- w- when there's a way to take care of it. And there's also, like I said, wait list two, which he's referring to. Over 90% are, don't reach the 112-day national average. Just don't reach it. And the wait list one, which they refuse, although they have the numbers, they have they paid for an intake worker. Department of Health paid for an intake worker. They have over 800 referrals that can't be seen until to April 2024 because of this so-called cap. That it's just it's just unbelievable what they're doing to the residents of Western Newfoundland. And I was debating. I said I just can't let the misinformation go. And it's just constant. And and and. When when the minister stated that they can do surgeries on the West Coast at the two centers, and, and I sent this into Department of Health. Here's a letter. Here's a letter from Western Health. There has been no cataract procedures performed at Sir Tommy Karatek Hospital since January 2021. There has been also challenges with the availability of the custom supplies. So when the minister says that for the last number of years they could be doing surgeries at, at Stephenville, it's just false. He has this information. And, and I even gave him the number. Go call. Get the exact number. And, and Patty, the other thing, and I know you gave me a lot of leeway before on this here, is about the fin- financing. So obviously money is not the issue now. If you can sign a piece of paper like the minister did and say, okay, here's 3000 for St. John's. So money's not the issue because it is cheaper to do it at the private clinics. It is cheaper. It's proven by the minister doing that. So the minister, the minister if he can do that, why not take care of the wait list in Western Newfoundland? Okay. Is there a capacity issue with the number of doctors available to do any, to clear up this backlog? It's an honest question because I don't know the answer. The, the, there's three at the clinic in Cornerbrook right now. They'll go a certain period and they'll stop. They'll stop. They got to stop because because of the uh, of the quota system. One one, and, and this is the other thing the minister is saying. Oh, they can do it Western. They get one day a week at Western. One of the specialists at Western at, at Cornerbrook does glaucoma for all the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. So what they're saying, and I have it in writing, he can decide what he wants if he wants to do uh, cataracts or glaucoma. So if he stops doing. Uh, uh, Glucoma to do cataracts, there's going to be, which is more serious, glucoma is more serious, they, they need the surgery. There's people all across the province will ha- be put behind for a more serious and much needed uh, operation. So so every every statement that they're making to allow those people from Western Newfoundland to still continue with the deterioration of life and have, have loss of vision, quality of life, 
is proven false. For some reason, the premier of this province will not step in and say, listen, we need to get this straightened up. If you can do with a strike of a pen to give 3000 for St. John's, and if it's needed, go for it. There's, I'm not disputing that one bit. Everybody should have their vision. Okay. So wait times are a, a weird thing. What we don't factor in is how wait times are evaluated for a percentage of success, we'll say, is based on national benchmarks. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes we just talk about wait times, well, it's too long or it's too slow. But unless we use something like a national benchmark, we're really not given anything any context. For cataract surgery, the national benchmark is 112 days. That's right. Here's the numbers that I have. You tell me if they're wrong. And these are the numbers coming from the government, and you're saying they're lies. And I'm just going to put them out there so folks understand. Yeah. Inside of Eastern Health, well, just do Eastern Health and Western Health, because that's the numbers, that's the areas you've been talking about. The number of first eye cataract procedures completed, 281 West, in Eastern Health, 22 in Western Health. Five out of 10 patients had surgery within this number of days. In Eastern Health, it's 238. In Western Health, it's 58. Nine out of 10 patients had surgery within this number of days, 465 Eastern, 176 Western. Percentage of patients who had surgery within 112 days, Eastern Health, 32%. Western Health, 80%. That is, I, I, I can't speak on, West, on Eastern Health, okay, because I, I, I did no research on that. I can tell you that the information that you just presented that they're giving you is absolutely false. And absolutely false. And not, not only are they talking about the benchmark, but the minister refuses. Minister and John Hagee refused, the premier refused, and Tom Osborne. There's a second list. Once you go, once you um, see a, 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 go get your eyes checked, and then all of a sudden they say, okay, you got to go up now and get a referral because you, you may need cataracts. That person do not go on the wait list until there's a referral. And, and once a referral, and then once there's a, a counsel by one of the three specialists. Right, that's so, when the clock starts. And this is only for first eye cataracts as well. Yeah, but, but the, there's 800 people right now, over 800, that the clock hadn't started on yet. They, they can't start until they get this wait list to well, the quota they got. Then they'll do a consult, and then they're not even, they're not even on the, anybody's, the government's saying, well, they're not on a radar because they haven't got a consult, a consult. But, Patty, they're being referred. They will get their cataracts done, but they've got to wait till 2024. This number is, is verified by, uh, by Western Health. Department of Health put in $250,000 to do an intake worker to bring the list up to standard, any duplication, anything. That number is available to the minister. I offered the minister the number to phone to get this clarified. The minister has access to the information, but for some reason, for some ungodly reason, they want the people, those mainly seniors in western Newfoundland, not to have the quality of life. I just don't understand it. And I just know just then they had they had a budget announcement that they're going to put the hundred over hundred million dollars uh, in into this new fund that they're going to have rainy day fund. But yet we still got eight hundred over eight hundred seniors in Western Newfoundland with no cost to the government, cheaper to the government, with a strike of a pen we could give them back their quality of life, and we're not going to do it. I, I, I'm lost. I, I am actually totally lost, but I refuse to give up, and I refuse to let the minister put out false information to justify the decision that affects so many people on Western Newfoundland. And a lot of them, they're from Jerry Burns District, as I said, Scott Reed, the Premier's own district. They're, call, they're calling me from the Premier's district himself. Down first, uh, uh, Lance Clear, Lance Lou are calling me. People are calling me. Keep up the fight for it. 
So, Patty, I, I, I just don't know what else I can say or do, but the minister has access to all this information. Money is not the issue anymore because he could strike up a pen. If he could do 3000 in St. John's, I'm sure he could do um, 800 in in uh, Western New, uh, Newfoundland. So money is not the issue. The only issue mm-hmm. is why they won't do it. I appreciate the time, Eddie. Thanks for this. Eddie, thank you very much, and I'm sorry for being so upset, but I, I just yeah. feel so strong why the, the, the seniors uh, and a lot of people in Western Newfoundland are, are just being pushed aside. I just can't stand for it. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Bye, Eddie. That's Eddie Joyce, independent member for Humber Bay of Islands. That's an interesting story and big whopping disparity. I only offered the numbers regarding wait times just for context. And look, I will ask the minister the very specific questions that Eddie Joyce put forward. No problem. The only reason I offered numbers is not to say, oh, good thing to cure the town. It's not, it's not that at all. Why would I feel like that? I wonder aloud is if there's, we're only hitting 32% of the national benchmark 112 days in Eastern Health, but the numbers reported are 80, but Eddie makes an important point. Until the council takes place, you're not on the radar. Consequently, you're not contributing to the numbers that we are talking about here for how many patients and how many of those patients are seen within the national benchmark. So important distinction offered by Eddie. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, it's your turn. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Anita, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, I'm calling uh, in reference to a phone call you got yesterday from a man named Kurt, I believe. Mm-hmm. His father uh, was uh, in the American military and just passed away. I went through the same thing myself a couple weeks ago. So I have the phone number here on who he needs to contact. He needs to contact the Veterans Association in the U.S. Well, he's his father, if I remember the story properly, and there's a chance I don't, is that he was working on the American base, not a member of the American military. Uh, it doesn't matter. Okay. He is still eligible for uh, uh, death benefits and burial, where his father did work for the American military, even though it was on the base. Okay, He's still uh, eligible for those same benefits that the, American, uh, the Americans would get where he worked on the base. Yeah, so Retirement Information Office. Anyway, you give me the number you have. I also have some information that someone sent to me as well. What do you have? Okay. I have the VA's number, which would be who they have to notify. And once he notifies them, they will tell him what he needs to do. Okay. And uh, um, they'll, they'll be able to give him all the information that he needs. And uh, I do believe that uh, where he did work on the base, that uh, he is available for uh, burial benefit also. And uh, if he if he still has a wife, um, she would be uh, also uh, able to get a uh, uh, pension benefit um, from that from him. So I just wanted to leave the numbers. Please do. Okay. The VA number is 1-800-827-1000. And I have another number here for uh, Veterans Burial, Um, 1-800-827-1000. It's the same number. And um, down here, um, National Records, U.S. Department of Affairs, this is who you notify also. That is 314 
Okay, do you happen to know if that 1-800 number for the VA actually works in Canada? Just curious. Yes, it does, because okay. I, I called them myself a few weeks ago. Okay, excellent. We will share this with Kirk. I also have another piece of information. We're just trying to help him get where he needs to be. Yeah, um, when I when I heard the call yesterday, my heart went right out to him. I called this as as quick as I, I could, but you were going you were going off the air then. So um, yeah, um, I couldn't sleep last night actually, uh, knowing that I had this information and he didn't. Right. Well, I'm glad you called us with it to, uh, today. Thanks a lot, Anita. Thank you. Have a good day, Patty. Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. I uh, just want to give out another number here. And this uh, different issue, this is about emergency housing. This was provided by the folks over at Newfoundland Labrador Housing. If you are experiencing, whether you're on the wait list or not, if you are experiencing homelessness, there is an emergency shelter line. And here it is. And I'll give it out again tomorrow. It's one 724 2444. Emergency home, uh, homelessness, emergency shelter line is 1 833 724 2444. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye bye.